Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Governments. I'm Catherine Haddon, IFG Programme Director and this week's presenter. After days, weeks and months of speculation about what Jeremy Hunt might set out in his autumn statement, this week the Chancellor finally revealed what might be the government's penultimate fiscal statement before the next general election. So, what did the Chancellor set out? What does it tell us about the state of the economy? Will the Conservative Party be satisfied? And how will the government's messages land with the electorate? And we might also discuss what all of this might tell us about the date of the next general election, when it might be fought and what it might be on. I'm pleased to be joined by two of the IFG's biggest economic brains uh, here with me in the studio. First, our chief economist, Gemma Tetlow. Hi, Gemma. Hello, Cal. Uh, We've also got our senior fellow, Giles Wilkes, a formal special advisor in Number 10 and the business department. He's with us too. Hi, Giles. Hi, Kath. And I'm delighted that we are joined not just by one, but by two Gileses today. Giles Wynne was a special advisor to former Chancellor Philip Hammond from 2017 to 2019 and is now a specialist partner at communications consultancy Pagefield. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kath. Um, Giles, when I'll turn to you quickly, do you miss the big fiscal events like this or is it slightly better for the blood pressure to be on the outside? I mean, I've got to say I love a fiscal event, but working in Treasury is one of those things that never leaves you. So even having you know been gone now for a number of years, it's still you still feel that sort of energy and you know uh, people sort of you know flatter me by asking my opinion on things and, and you advise people about some of what it means, but yeah, no, it never leaves you. Let's talk a bit about the autumn statement and the background to it as well. This one has been much trailed. We've been talking about it for a while. What's it like being on the inside? When do the preparations start? What are they like in the final weeks before something like this comes out? It's a hugely exciting experience. I mean, Treasury is um, a fantastic place to work. And I was, you know, feel really fortunate that I had the opportunity to do that really really gifted um officials um so it's, it's it's a really exciting process to work on because you're working on with really really brilliant people i know that gets said a lot but it's 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 really true and i think in terms of preparation i mean it's, it's worth saying it's different for different for different types of events and obviously mm. when i was there we had one fiscal event a year something which i think the ifg is very much in favor of um we've you know now moved back to to i mean i don't know why they don't just call them budgets and i keep calling you know what happened uh, what happened this week a budget when it's obviously autumn statement so for us our what was actually then we had awesome budgets and spring statements the spring statement was a non-fiscal event. The nature of the work that went into that was obviously a lot less than for a full kind of a full-scale fiscal event. But it was still um, it was still a really important piece of work because a lot of that was about kind of forward guidance, uh, both to both obviously to, to to the public and to kind of markets, but also to the party, which was mm. absolutely key. And I worked in government at the time when you know the party was 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 divided and government was at a political level was divided almost kind of structurally. It was almost designed to be divided along Brexit lines. But working on a big uh, on on a proper fiscal event, I mean, you it starts obviously many months before, yeah. and thinking is going into it in Treasury and in the Chancellor's, uh, you know, kind of direct teams, obviously his political team and his his lead officials, and obviously you've got a you've got a, a you've got a team, a strategy team, at Treasury dedicated to the budget as well. That 
it begins to take shape. I always think around about six weeks out, you've really it's 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 very much taking shape, and you've got a real good idea of actually what it's looking like in terms of some of the major themes and some of the major measures. Um, and then as you get much closer to it, you're beginning to 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 get more into some of the some of the the, the minutiae. I'd say minutiae really it's kind of some of the mid level detail. Um, and then you're beginning to think of actually one of the things that I was most involved in is how to sort of land measures. So yeah. some of the things that are going to be most tricky. Uh, for example, if you've got any tax rises, obviously that's very difficult. But more often than not, it's things that you're not doing for people that when people, as I say, people that might be, you know, uh, organizations, campaign organizations, that could be business, that could be certain sectors. And, and a lot of the time it's the party, the MPs, what they're asking for. And so often have to land a measure where you're either doing something they don't like, not doing something they want, or more often than not, meeting them halfway. Mm. And so you then get into an exercise that's become known as pitch rolling, which is you know, rolling the pitch for certain things, which I will which I will fiercely defend that process because it's very necessary because we see we've seen what happened I with the with the Trust's budget, what happens when it's not done properly and when people aren't warmed up to things. So it's partly about giving a sort of warming up to something, but it's also about managing expectations and there is a bit of game playing there mm. you know if someone you know if a campaign body is asking for you know sort of you know uh, they're asking for sort of 100 and you know you can only sort of give 75 then you you manage expectations for 50 and then you get a win you know and 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 the stability you know party politics aside the stability of a fiscal event and how it's received is in everybody's interest that it that it isn't an absolute dud because again we've seen that that very much hits everybody in their pockets yeah so not just the the newspapers in the weekend before Gemma um let's talk a bit about what was actually in the statement and then we'll start digging into some of the other issues that Charles has just brought up what was your instant reaction to the statement and then we maybe talk about whether or not that's changed overnight i think my interaction was a bit of a slightly torn if you look narrowly at the tax measures that were announced yesterday as a package of tax giveaways my narrow feeling was positive that they are actually pretty well designed taxes for encouraging business investment through the full expensing policy and the national insurance contribution cut is well targeted to encourage workforce participation it's certainly better than giving the same money away through income tax for yeah. example but zooming out a bit, my reaction was much less positive because really Jeremy Hunt was able to give away that money in tax cuts because inflation has been higher than expected. That means particularly because a lot of tax thresholds and allowances are frozen at the moment, tax revenues are coming in much more strongly. Mm. So he got a windfall from that and gave the money away through tax cuts. But actually the unsaid thing was that Higher inflation also means that public spending budgets are going to stretch less far, and he chose not to top those up at all in cash terms. So really, that tax cut was enabled by the fact that he chose not to add to those fixed cash budgets on the spending side. Yeah, Giles, and um, you wrote for us ahead of the statement um, and said that Hunt should be uh, should beware going for politicised tax cuts when some sort of economic stability was needed. I'm guessing from what Gemma said... Well, not wholly positive. Well, I would say okay. I don't agree with the overall macro decision to cut taxes when, as Gemma implies, they haven't 
refresh the public spending amounts that are needed for the surprise inflation we've suffered for the last year. So he's allowed himself passively to receive tens of billions of pounds extra from those frozen thresholds, but he's also passively taking up to £20 billion from public spending settlements. But once you decide to do tax cuts, I would say he's chosen pretty good ones um, from the point of view of business investment. I mean, that the, the full expensing of capital is the most unanimous demand of the business community I can ever recall. Mm. And he's delivered on that. And it's something that 99 out of 100 people in the street will not have heard of. So he's deployed a lot of firepower for something that the economists and the Treasury know is the right thing and is not going to win him a single vote. That's really praiseworthy. And if you have to be doing something in terms of like personal taxation and putting cash in people's pockets on January the 6th, which mm. bring it, um, I think, three months earlier, then we had, well, the national insurance is the better one to do than income tax because it, it only affects workers rather than just workers and pensioners, and um, it increases the labour supply somewhat. So once you, with a huge caveat, once you accept that you're going to be doing tax cuts because you're, you're a Conservative Chancellor, then these aren't terrible ones, and they, they, they've been scored upwards on the economy by the, by the OBR, which is you know, a reasonably good result by the standards of recent budgets. Mm, yeah. Just to pick up on the point Giles made there about the 6th of January date, I think it's, it's hard to know whether the choice to go for income tax, sorry, for national insurance contributions rather than income tax is mainly motivated by the fact that it is has better economic effects because it's more well targeted on encouraging labour force participation than income tax would be, or whether a big part of the motivation was the more political one to get the tax cut in earlier because yeah. because national insurance is a weekly tax. You can do that before the end of this tax year, whereas income tax you couldn't cut until yeah, so you'd have April. To wait to wait, yeah. It's also cheaper, right? That income tax. Yeah, uh, it is. Although, I mean, I guess if you spent the same amount of money on income tax, you couldn't do as big a percentage point cut. And I'd love to see the other big moment yesterday is, I can see a copy there, uh, the Office of for Budget Responsibility also put out their forecasts. Um, you've both got lovely copies of it. So what were we seeing? I mean, you've talked a little bit about um, some of the ways in which they were scoring all of this, but is there, was what was in there in terms of the forecast looking ahead? Were there some surprises? So it was a bit of a mixed picture. So on the one hand, they have given credit to Jeremy Hunt for the positive economic impacts of the new measures that were announced yesterday. On the other hand, actually, they've become more gloomy on a number of their underlying mm. assumptions. So actually, the outlook for UK economic growth is weaker than it was back in March. So we had this strange situation of Jeremy Hunt apparently having some kind of windfall, but in the context of actually a worse economic outlook. The outlook for households' incomes is actually slightly better than we had back in March, but still with a drop this year and taking a while to get back to where it was pre-pandemic. So Jeremy Hunt talked about sort of turning the corner on the economy. I'm not sure it's going to feel like that for most households yeah, at the moment. It, it is really confusing because one of the really intriguing, one of the reasons apparently they downgraded future growth is because of the welcome news we got a few months ago that past growth is higher. Mm. We're no longer the lagging economy from in terms of recovering from COVID, thanks to a restatement of figures going back years and years. But as a result, the OBR has turned around and said, oh, it looks like we're closer to our economic limits than we thought. So it's like somebody who was thinking they were dieting, losing two pounds a week and thought they were doing really well, but it turned out they'd measured their original weight wrong. 
and they've actually only been losing one pound a week. And as a result, they're going, ah, you're not so good at losing weight after all. So in this case, they're saying you can't really grow as fast because it looks like actually your economy was already bigger and the future isn't as good. I could see some people finding this controversial if only they could understand it. But it's it's just a really confusing message that we're somehow because we've done better in the past, we're closer to our limits and our future is more grim. Yeah, I think it's worth saying, even though the OBR is less optimistic than they were in March about growth prospects, they still look a lot more optimistic than the Bank of England are about the next few years. The Bank of England is particularly pessimistic, but the OBR is still towards the upper end of what most independent forecasters are suggesting about the next few years. So they've become less optimistic, but they're still possibly um, on the optimistic end. Yeah. And um, Charles Wynne, one of the things that the commentators in newspapers have been focusing on is basically it's the calculations of how um, Hunt found the money to do the things that he wanted to do and referring to it as headroom. And, uh, you know, a lot of talk about the different measures that you do and don't choose to do. Obviously, they have at this stage not said that they will freeze um, fuel duty. And yet, I think every government going back to, I don't know, 2010 has frozen fuel duty. So one assumes that there isn't the, to use that word, headroom um, that uh, there might be. But I think you object to the phrase headroom anyway. <laughs> I object to it in the sense that I think over the past three or four years, it's entered the mainstream lexicon in uh, among MPs and mainstream media and when I say mainstream I mean kind of maybe non sort of economic you know media around Westminster without context so absolutely you know it's very it's very it's a useful term it's obviously you know used treasury use it etc but the fact that it's now used frequently without any sort of context uh, and I think especially among MPs I think that's that's I think that's really dangerous um because it gives this false impression that there is sort of that there is this windfall that there is sort of free surplus money uh, swelling around. The OBR is guilty of this as well, by the way. I went to their website this morning, and their front page they've got a sort of a headline saying, you know, this is how Hunt spent his twenty-seven billion pound a windfall, and he goes on to talk about Headroom. So I think the sh- you know, I, I, if I was prime minister for a day, I'd introduce a law that said, you know, you must you must use the term Headroom in appropriate context. That is Headroom against what against fiscal rules, and what are the fiscal rules? Okay, and what are the assumptions underpinning those? And say, let's you know start asking some questions so people can kind of understand what that is. Let's turn to uh, the press reaction. We're speaking on uh, the afternoon after the autumn statement. The Times newspaper has a headline, Hunt eases tax burden. The Financial Times has tax burden surges despite Hunt cuts. You're used to doing a lot of the media handling. What will Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak be making of the headlines? Well, the front pages, you know, despite an evolving media landscape and readership of newspapers declining, front pages of the papers is still absolutely key and that's what drives drives a lot of the way the budget is the budget saying budget it, it was a budget basically what drives the way the autumn statement is communicated and how some of the things are managed there um and 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 it's what i think keeps some chancellors awake at night in terms of you know i was looking through some past headlines that osborne has had Osborne had when, when he when he was chancellor and there's there's some real shockers there so that's that's still absolutely key i think i doubt jeremy hunt is surprised mm at least by the FT's headline there. And obviously I think they'll be he'll also be very pleased at some of the others, you know, that you know, the the sun getting on board, the 
brought you know broadly the others the male you know whilst also pointing to kind of still a, lo- a long way to go but that's all on the surface right beneath the surface there's a, a bigger problem which is just which is a, a lack of honesty really and you know which is that the tax burden is is going to only go in one direction because of a number of pressures for example an aging population and more people living for longer and being sicker for longer and using the nhs and not earning and therefore paying tax all that time and that's even begin- before you begin to say the words net zero, right? Mm. So, you know, there is a real, there's a lack of honesty on both sides, or at least among both the main parties in politics um, around that. But I think on, on, on a superficial level, I imagine Jeremy Hunt will have woken up, I think in I think in Wales this morning, I think that's where he did his, nor- his morning round. I mean, normally the chance that you sort of, you know, you, you come out of the chamber and whether it's a, a statement or a, or a budget, you would then, you know, you go straight into your normally your parliamentary office and you ring around all the newspaper editors, which is, you know, which again shows that that's the first priority once he leaves the chamber. Um, and I, obviously, I'd say he only because obviously there've only been men so far, but that 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 may see change, obviously. And then there's other meetings throughout the day, and then normally the chancellor will then go on to wherever he's going to do his morning round from uh, the next day. And normally the, the the brilliant treasurer events team has found some some business somewhere that seems to be benefiting from one of the measures, and you you're, you're hoping beyond hope that it doesn't all fall apart, and and they turn out to be sort of you know supporting the other party or something. And so, and I think he did that from Wales this morning. So I suspect he woke up in Wales to and was pleased by that set of headlines. German. Yep. The other thing I noted was you know some of the other big headlines, as it were, coming out. Of- this were quite bold statements. I think the Chancellor himself said this was the biggest tax cut since the 1980s, but the OBR said it's the biggest fall in living standards since the 1950s. Do these sort of big, almost, you know, historical context matter or are people just looking for any particular moment to try and land, you know, where their autumn statement differs from others? I think Jeremy Hunt's statement that it was the biggest business tax cut since the 1980s is a bit of a stretch. Um, for a start, it relies on thinking that what matters is just the measures that you announce on one single day. And obviously, what really matters to business is what's the tax environment they take face taking everything together. And obviously, businesses are now, they've had a giveaway from full expensing, which encourages capital investment. They're obviously facing a higher headline rate of corporation tax than they were a few years ago. It also, I think, relies on the full expensing policy is much more expensive in the short term and much more of a giveaway to businesses in the short term than it is in the longer term because it basically brings forward the point at which they can write things off against tax. So I also I think for a couple of reasons, it's definitely a stretch to claim that this was the biggest business tax cut in a generation or however it was that he put it. Does it matter? Um, I mean, I think it clearly does grab the public mood when you do these sort of historical comparisons. I think in a sense, it is useful to put Mm. things in the context of the past. Um, The thing that is never useful and um, often politicians do is to look at cash numbers today and say, this is the biggest number since forever. And of course, particularly in an environment of very high inflation, Mm. it's very easy for cash numbers to look very big, but to mean not very much in real terms in terms of what you can actually buy with that. Yeah, and, and that is particularly uh, in terms of public services, which we've already discussed that the money was not spent on them. Um, but it's a, you know, our colleague Nick Davis has been pretty critical of this in terms of where it leaves public services. Yeah, so I think Nick's phrasing was that Jeremy Hunt had abdicated responsibility for dealing with the problems in public services. I think he's saying that because, as we've already mentioned, Inflation has gone up, wages are higher than were expected for public sector workers, but Jeremy Hunt has chosen not to top up any of those cash spending plans. And in fact, we got another year of spending plans added on to the forecast, and that's penciled in a further very small real terms increase in 2028. Those numbers 
particularly the ones penciled in beyond the next election, where we have no detail about Mm. how that's going to be distributed, already didn't look plausible. They look even more implausible now. They're just incredibly low rate of growth. And once you take account of the commitments that have already been made to things like the NHS workforce plan, increasing defence and aid spending in line with GDP, it leaves all the other areas of public activity facing real terms cuts that could be quite significant. Now, obviously, governments have cut uh, public spending in real terms and as a share of GDP in the past. George Osborne notably did that during the first half of the 2010s. But I think what's different now is that it was po- there were places you could find cuts in the 2010s. Our performance tracker analysis looking at how different public services are performing now suggest there are lots of problems already very evident. There are big backlogs in lots of services that have built up through the pandemic. And it's very hard to see now where you can really find cuts without also fronting up and saying, we're going to have to do less or offer a less good quality service as a way of doing that less cheap, less, less expensively. Giles Wilkes, I mean, we've been talking a lot about it today of what you're doing in an autumn statement. Mm. Obviously, we expect there still to be at least one budget before any general election. Uh, Do you get any signs today of is there some strategy behind this of things that you might want to do now? There were another podcast, I'm not going to name it, perhaps with some former people who worked in the Treasury, Mm -hmm. um, talked about how you often use the autumn statement before an election for the bad news and then the budget for the big pre-election giveaway. But is that likely? It's possible, although I think they're taking a huge gamble that things are going to improve by March rather than get worse. And I think the two nameless people to whom you refer are at the hyper-political end of the sort of very bright economist sort of commentators you get here, the sort of people who, I can't quite believe it, but actually believe in twice yearly budgets, which um, both Giles and I shake our heads sorrowfully that people could be so base and political. So is there likely to be something coming up in March? Definitely. I mean, this is a party that seems seemingly suffering from a structural 20-point gap in the polls, which, depending on how the dice fall, could end up meaning 200 to 300-seat losses if it, if it actually sticks here. Rishi Sunak is under huge pressure from the still quite numerous followers of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, who, for separate reasons, don't particularly care about fiscal maths mm. and are very keen to give the public something in the spring. And, um, and so I think they'll be hoping that there's further headroom somehow arrives, headroom with heavy air quotes, and that they're able to deploy it for something that's really, really popular. I mean, I believe Tory mythology still looks back longingly at 2007 when George Osborne unveiled a very large cut to inheritance tax and somehow spooked um, the Labour Party so badly they abandoned a planned election. And that's always regarded as one of the sort of great coup de theatre of um, of conservative shadow chancellors who, uh, and, and you know, they'll be hoping to have the same magic. So I wouldn't be surprised if they said, and now thanks to our hard work on inflation or whatever, we're going to announce something that retail and, and crowd-pleasing in the spring. But as I said, there were huge risks. I mean, the irony, there's multiple ironies here. This government might feel aggrieved that it happened to be in power at a time of this massive inflationary surge that's hit all sorts of economies across the Western world. But the inflation is the only reason they've been allowed to get away with the trick they've played this year. As Martin Wolf argued in his column today, if inflation had been low and they tried to play the same trick of cutting taxes and cutting future spending, Mm. they'd have had to have announced actual cash cuts to spending totals and they would never have got away with it. Passively allowing it to happen by just failing to raise those spending totals gives them a chance to do that trick. 
are they going to get another burst of surprise inflation between now and March? Well, they better not get one because that's also incredibly unpopular with the public. So I don't see where the positive surprises are going to come from that will enable them to deploy firepower very easily. And so I think they'll take a real risk with their fiscal credibility if they try to come up with too many giveaways. Um, so yeah, they definitely want something in the March budget. I really don't see how they can do it. Yeah, I was wondering whether or not it just the pressure this time around to show some kind of tax cut given, you know, we see there's Liz Truss's growth commission, but some in the party who are pushing for tax cuts and want to see that and think that's the core of conservatism. Do you think it is, Giles Wynne, about that that kind of pressure is the reason why we've seen this move right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, the, clearly there is pressure and, and clearly also, you know, just by looking at what Jeremy Hunt said two, three weeks ago about tax cuts compared to what happened yesterday, it doesn't look like this is necessarily what he envisaged announcing. You know, uh, I spoke about kind of six weeks out is where it begins to take shape. That's not necessarily where, you know, what he'd envisaged. And so clearly this is being steered by number 10 sensitivity to uh, views within the party over tax. But I think quite often, though, one of my problems with that is that quite often they take that as given. It's sort of like reading a poll and just taking mm. it as given without actually thinking how you might steer that. So when I was in Treasury, uh, myself and the then Financial Secretary of the Treasury, Mel Stride, about three months before one of our one of our events, we set out on an activity with MPs to essentially pitch roll the idea that there was sort of no money, right? So pitch roll the idea that we were going to have to do tax rises. And we set it on it and it was sort of a, and we tried to make it sort of fun by making it sort of, and this this, this is Mel's idea, to sort of have, you know, uh, it was, you know, suggest your, suggest your idea for a revenue raiser. And it was, then we sort of have these sort of, you know, X Factor style, you know, we sort of, in, in his big office in the corner of Treasury, you'd have lots of MPs come in and they sort of pitch their ideas, which was, which was sort of fun. But it, obviously the message there was, you know, uh, was get, with getting them to engage with, it. and they, I think you know MPs always appreciate being engaged with by government in a real way, but also getting the message across about what was then the, sort of the fiscal context, which was really important. And we weren't taking as a given, okay, look, they want they're not going to accept this, and they want tax cuts and whatever. And obviously, and, and also that was, you know, should we said that was at a much trickier time where there was kind of no majority, and actually you get a you know a focus group of you know, of nine or 10 MPs in a room is not a focus group, it's material. If they mm. say they don't like a, a measure, then your measure's not going to get through. So I think sometimes I would, you know, I, I'm not in government at the moment, but I would say, you know, I'd, I would encourage them to sort of to, to try and you know, it's 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 not to enter negotiation, but there's perhaps more of an education of some of uh, the the party around actually some of the realities here, and perhaps being a bit more honest with them. Yeah, and I mean, Gemma, talking about all of the bad news that is being stored up for 2025 or beyond for potentially a new government. I mean, how does how did Rachel Reeves respond to this? How difficult is it for for Labour? I think it is very difficult for whoever would win the next election. There are. I mean, it seems unlikely that whoever does would implement the spending plans that are currently penciled in. So it does potentially set up, I mean, a bit of a potentially a bit of a democratic deficit going into the next election if neither of the main parties are really at all honest about their inability to follow through on those spending plans. If they if that's the baseline and they take it as given, we start fighting a battle on other things, mm. then potentially there's a sort of very nasty surprise for the electorate after the next election and a difficult job for the next government to figure out how to deal with that, having not addressed it in an election campaign. It was interesting to see Rachel Reeves's reaction yesterday. I mean, she she was actually 
positive about the business tax cuts. It is in line with what they said they would want to do anyway. Similarly, not saying they would reverse the national insurance cuts either. So it's a tricky political setup that's been made there. And and this is is the Conservative strategy going into the next election. They've made it really clear. They want to pose really difficult questions Mm. to Labour. They want to say, we've done this, are you going to match it? And now how can you afford the nice things you want to do? Which uh, is, um, you know, it's classic political strategy. But I think they're just slightly naive in thinking that when they announce a bunch of measures that weaken the future fiscal situation, it will somehow turn into a question that voters are going to say, oh, that's a real problem for Labour. I'm now not sure about the Labour Party. Mm. It just strikes me as a slightly odd way of trying to set up the political argument. I think Labour are going to, if they do come in, they'll simply come in and say, look at the size of the problem we've been left Mm. with and, and then kind of start again. And yeah, it is awkward that they'll be inheriting tax cuts that they know right now are not affordable, but that's going to be something they deal with in their first couple of years, I suspect. Yeah, well, speaking of the election, there was a lot of speculation yesterday about whether or not the timing of the national insurance cuts and the the, the the autumn statement generally was implying something about the date of the election. Giles Wynne, do you think it suddenly tells us that there's going to be an election in May or is that just uh, people reading too much into it? I don't think it makes it more likely, but I think it makes it more possible. And I think that's why that, that that's possibly what's fed into it. So number 10 will want maximum optionality. They'll want maximum flexibility over when they call it. So to answer your question directly, no, I, I, you know, I don't think it, it, it means that it's around the corner. My, my, my personal money would still be on autumn for, for a number of reasons. But uh, I think, you know, even, even the prime minister right now, I'm sure does not, does not know exactly when the next election is going to be, or have a really a fixed idea. And, and so they want maximum flexibility. And also remember that, Whenever they give out signals about when the election might be, there's multiple audiences there. There's 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 the party, uh, and so you want you know you want to make sure that your, your machinery is sort of ready for that election. But there's also the opposition as well, and you essentially want to sort of mess with their mind a little bit. And and so I think there's some of that going on. Actually, I was at an event yesterday just before the autumn statement with a member of the shadow cabinet who was saying that they'd just been told or they'd just been reminded, you know, in, in sort of a briefing that it's it's apparently 16 weeks until the point at which you would have to call an election if it was going to be in May. So that that it's clearly that's in their mind, right? But none of that gets away from the fact that, you know, as as, as Giles said, you know, this there's a kind of a structural uh, you know, they're structurally sort of, you know, 20 points behind the Tories 20 points behind the fold. So if that doesn't change, then what are the factors that's going to want, you know, a, a prime minister to to decide to go sort of six months earlier? Mm. Uh, you know, my money is personally on the autumn, I think later in the autumn, I think because when you factor in the party conference timetable, and I think they'll want to have party conferences, I think that knocks you into sort of uh, November. I think another reason November is attractive is that Rishi Sunak would be able to say that he's done two years, and that is material. I think, I th- you know, I think that has been a factor for other prime ministers, thinking that they, you know, wondering what it's going to say on their Wikipedia page. And I think Rishi Sunak probably wants to be a prime minister that's been prime minister of a G7 country for more than two years than one year and something months. Well, we will no doubt keep speculating about the date of the election until the election and do see our explainer on the different options for when Rishi Sunak might call it. That's it for today. Thank you to Gemma Tetlow, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Giles Wynne. Thank you for being with us. And thank you, everyone who listened in. You can find all Inside Briefing episodes and all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. 
Remember to head to our website for all our post-autumn statement analysis from Gemma and her expert team, as well as the reaction from colleagues across the IFG. Until then, have a happy weekend. See you next week. Bye.